Chapter Fifteen of Is He Popenjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Read by Barry O'Neill. Is He Popenjoy? By Anthony Trollope. Chapter Fifteen. Drop it. For ten or twelve days after the little dinner in Berkeley Square, Gus Mildmay bore her misfortunes without further spoken complaint. During all that time, though they were both in London, she never saw Jack de Baron, and she knew that in not seeing her he was neglecting her. But for so long she bore it. It is generally supposed that young ladies have to bear such sorrow without loud complaint but Gus was more thoroughly emancipated than are some young ladies, and when moved was wont to speak her mind. At last, when she herself was only on foot with her father, she saw Jack de Baron riding with Lady George. It is quite true that she also saw riding behind them her perfidious friend, Mrs. Houghton, and a gentleman whom at that time she did not know to be Lady George's father. This was early in March, when equestrians in the park are not numerous. Gus stood for a moment looking at them, and Jack de Baron took off his hat, but Jack did not stop, and went on talking with that pleasant vivacity which she, poor girl, knew so well and valued so highly. Lady George liked it too, though she could hardly have given any reason for liking it, for, to tell the truth, there was not often much pith in Jack's conversation. On the following morning, Captain de Baron, who had lodgings in Charles Street, close to the guards' club, had a letter brought to him before he was out of bed. The letter was from Gus Mildmay, and he knew the handwriting well. He had received many notes from her, though none so interesting on the whole as was this letter. Miss Mildmay's letter to Jack was as follows. It was written certainly with a swift pen and but that he knew her writing well, would in parts have been hardly legible. I think you are treating me very badly. I tell you openly and fairly. It is neither gentlemanlike nor high-spirited, as you know that I have no one to take my part but myself. If you mean to cut me, say so, and let me understand it at once. You have taken up now with that young married woman, just because you know it will make me angry. I don't believe for a moment that you really care for such a baby-faced chit as that. I have met her, too, and I know that she hasn't a word to say for herself. Do you mean to come and see me? I expect to hear from you, letting me know when you will come. I do not intend to be thrown over for her or anyone. I believe it is mostly Adelaide's doing. Who doesn't like to think that you should really care for anyone? You know very well what my feelings are and what sacrifice I am ready to make. And you know what you have told me of yourself. Papa, of course, will go to his club at three. Aunt Julia has an afternoon meeting at the Institute for the Distribution of Prizes among the Rights of Women Young Men, and I have told her positively that I won't go. Nobody else will be admitted. Do come, and at any rate let us have it out. This state of things will kill me, though of course you don't mind that. Gee, I shall think you a coward if you don't come. Oh, Jack, do come. She had begun like a lion, but it ended like a lamb, and such was the nature of every thought she had respecting him. She was full of indignation. She assured herself hourly that such treachery as his deserved death. 
She longed for a return of the old times, thirty years since, and for some old-fashioned brother, so that Jack might be shot at and have a pistol-bullet in his heart. And yet she told herself as often that she could not live without him. Where should she find another Jack, after her recklessness in letting all the world know that this man was her Jack? She hardly wanted to marry him, knowing full well the nature of the life which would then be before her. Jack had told her often that if forced to do that, he must give up the army and go live in blank. He had named Danzig as having the least alluring sound of any place he knew. To her it would be best that things should go on just as they were now, till something should turn up. But that she should be enthralled and Jack free was not to be borne. She begrudged him no other pleasure. She was willing that he should hunt, gamble, eat, drink, smoke, and be ever so wicked, if that were his taste, but not that he should be seen making himself agreeable to another young woman. It might be that their position was unfortunate, but of that misfortune she had had by far the heavier share. She could not eat, drink, smoke, gamble, hunt, and be generally wicked. Surely he might bear it if she could. Jack, when he read the letter, tossed it on to the counterpane, and rolled himself again in bed. It was not as yet much after nine, and he need not decide for an hour or two whether he would accept the invitation or not. But the letter bothered him, and he could not sleep. She told him that if he did not come he would be a coward, and he felt that she had told him the truth. He did not want to see her, not because he was tired of her, for in her softer humours she was always pleasant to him, but because he had a clear insight into the misery of the whole connection. When the idea of marrying her suggested itself, he always regarded it as being tantamount to suicide. Were he to be persuaded to take such a step, he would simply be blowing his own brains out because someone else asked him to do so. He had explained all this to her at various times when suggesting Danzig, and she had agreed with him. Then, at that point, his common sense had been better than hers, and his feeling really higher. That being so, he had said, it is certainly for your advantage that we should part. But this to her had been as though he were striving to break his own chains, and was indifferent to her misery. I can take care of myself, she had answered him. But he knew that she could not take care of herself. Had she not been most unwise, most imprudent, she would have seen the wisdom of letting the intimacy of their acquaintance drop, without any further explanation. But she was most unwise. Nevertheless, when she accused him of cowardice, must he not go? He breakfasted uncomfortably, trying to put off the consideration, and then uncomfortably sauntered down to the guard-house at St. James's. He had no intention of writing, and was therefore not compelled to make up his mind till the hour named for the appointment should actually have come. He thought for a while that he would write her a long letter, full of good sense, explaining to her that it was impossible that they should be useful to each other, and that he found himself compelled by his regard for her to recommend that their peculiar intimacy should be brought to an end. But he knew that such a letter would go for nothing with her that she would regard it simply as an excuse on his part. They two had tacitly agreed not to be bound by common sense, not to be wise. Such tacit agreements are common enough between men, between women, and between men and women. What, a sermon from you? No, indeed, not that. 
Jack felt all this, felt that he could not preach without laying himself open to ridicule. When the time came he made up his mind that he must go. Of course it was very bad for her. The servants would all know it. Everybody would know it. She was throwing away every chance she had of doing well for herself. But what was he to do? She had told him that he would be a coward, and he at any rate could not bear that. Mr. Mildmay lived in a small house in Green Street, very near the park, but still a modest, unassuming, cheap little house. Jack de Baron knew the way to it well, and was there not above a quarter of an hour after the appointed time. "'So Aunt Ju has gone to the rights of woman, has she?' he said, after his first greeting. He might have kissed her if he would, but he wouldn't. He had made up his mind about that, and so had she. She was ready for him, whether he should kiss her or not, ready to accept either greeting, as though it was just that which she had expected. "'Oh, yes, she is going to make a speech herself. But why do they give prizes to young men?' Because the young men have stood up for the old woman, why don't you go and get a prize? I had to be here instead. Had to be here, sir? Yes, Gus, had to be here. Isn't that about it? When you tell me to come and tell me that I am a coward if I don't come, of course I am here. And now you are here. What have you got to say for yourself? This she attempted to say easily and jauntily. Not a word. Then I don't see what is the use of coming. Nor I, either. What would you have me say? I would have you—I would have you—and then there was something like a sob. It was quite real. I would have you tell me that you love me. Have I not told you so a score of times, and what has come of it? But is it true? Come, Gus, this is simple folly. You know it is true, and you know also that there is no good whatever to be got from such truth. If you loved me, you would like to see me. No, I shouldn't. No, I don't, unless it could lead to something. There was a little fun to be had when we could spoon together, when I hardly knew how to ask for it, and you hardly knew how to grant it, when it was a little shooting bud, and had to be nursed by smiles and pretty speeches. But there are only three things it can come to now. Two are impossible, and therefore there is the other. What are the three? We might get married. Well, one of the three I shall not tell you. And we might make up our minds to forget it all, do what people call part. That is what I suggest. So that you may spend your time riding about with Lady George Germain. That is nonsense, Gus. Lady George Germain. I have seen her three times, and she talks only about her husband. A pretty little woman more absolutely in love I have never come across. Pretty little fool! Very likely. I have nothing to say against that. Only when you have no heavier stone to throw against me than Lady George Germain, really you are badly off for weapons. I have stones enough if I choose to throw them. Oh, Jack! What more is there to be said? Have you had enough of me already, Jack? I should not have had half enough of you if either you or I had fifty thousand pounds. If I had them, I would give them all to you. And I to you. That goes without telling. But as neither of us have got the money, what are we to do? I know what we had better not do. 
we had better not make each other unhappy by what people call recriminations. I don't suppose that anything I can say can affect your happiness. Yes, it does, very much. It makes me think of deep rivers and high columns, of express trains and prussic acid. Well, as we have known each other, you have never found out how unfortunately soft I am. Very soft. I am. This troubles me so that I ride over awfully big places, thinking that I might perhaps be lucky enough to break my neck. What must I feel who have no way of amusing myself at all? Drop it. I know it is a hard thing for me to say. I know it will sound heartless, but I am bound to say so. It is for your sake. I can't hurt myself. It does me no harm that everybody knows that I am philandering after you. But it is the very deuce for you. She was silent for a moment. Then he said again emphatically, Drop it. I can't drop it, she said through her tears. Then what are we to do? As he asked this question, he approached her and put his arm around her waist. This he did in momentary vacillating mercy, not because of the charm of the thing to himself, but through his own inability not to give her some token of affection. "'Mary,' she said in a whisper, "'and go live at Danzig for the rest of our lives.' He did not speak these words, but such was the exclamation which he at once made internally to himself. If he had resolved in anything, he had resolved that he would not marry her. One might sacrifice oneself, he had said to himself, if one could do her any good, but what's the use of sacrificing both? He withdrew his arm from her and stood a yard apart from her, looking into her face. "'That would be so horrible to you,' she said. "'It would be horrible to have nothing to eat.' "'We should have seven hundred and fifty pounds a year,' said Gus, who had made her calculations very narrowly. "'Well, yes, and no doubt we could get enough to eat at such a place as Danzig.' "'Danzig, you always laugh at me when I speak seriously. "'Or Lubeck, if you like it better, or Leipzig.' I shouldn't care the least in the world where we went. I know a chap who lives in Menorca because he has not got any money. We might go to Menorca. Only the mosquitoes would eat you up. Will you do it? I will if you will. They were standing now three yards apart, and Gus was looking terrible things. She did not endeavor to be soft, but had made up her mind as to the one step that must be taken. She would not lose him. They need not be married immediately something might turn up before any date was fixed for their marriage if she could only bind him by an absolute promise that he would marry her some day i will if you will she said again after waiting a second or two for his answer then he shook his head you will not after all you have said to me he shook his head again then jack de baron you are perjured and no gentleman Dear Gus, I can bear that. It is not true, you know, as I have never made you any promise which I am not ready to keep. But still, I can bear it. No promise! Have you not sworn that you loved me? A thousand times. And what does that mean from a gentleman to a lady? It ought to mean matrimony and all that kind of thing, but it never did mean it with us. You know how it all began." I know what it has come to, and that you owe me as a gentleman to let me decide whether I am able to encounter such a life or not. Though it were absolute destruction, you ought to face it if I bid you. 
If it were destruction for myself only, perhaps yes, but though you have so little regard for my happiness, I still have some for yours. It is not to be done. You and I have had our little game, as I said before, and now we had better put the rackets down and go and rest ourselves. What rest? Oh, Jack, what rest is there? Try somebody else. You can tell me to do that? Certainly I can. Look at my cousin Adelaide. Your cousin Adelaide never cared for any human being in her life except herself. She had no punishment to suffer as I have. Oh, Jack, I do so love you. Then she rushed at him and fell upon his bosom and wept. He knew that this would come, and he felt that, upon the whole, this was the worst part of the performance. He could bear her anger or her sullenness with fortitude, but her lachrymose caresses were insupportable. He held her, however, in his arms, and gazed at himself in the pier-glass most uncomfortably over her shoulder. "'Oh, Jack,' she said, "'oh, Jack, what is to come next?' His face became somewhat more lugubrious than before, but he said not a word. "'I cannot lose you altogether. There is no one else in the wide world that I care for. Papa thinks of nothing but his whist. Aunt Jew, with her rights of women, is an old fool.' "'Just so,' said Jack, still holding her, and still looking very wretched. "'What shall I do if you leave me?' "'Pick up with someone who has a little money. I know it sounds bad, and mercenary, and all that, but in our way of life there is nothing else to be done. We can't marry like the ploughboy and the milkmaid.' "'I could, and would be the first to find out your mistake afterwards. It's all very well saying that Adelaide hasn't got a heart.' I dare say she has as much a heart as you or me. As you, as you. Very well. Of course you have a sort of pleasure in abusing me, but she has known what she could do and what she could not. Every year as she grows older she will become more comfortable. Houghton is very good to her, and she has lots of money to spend. If that's heartlessness, there's a good deal to be said for it. Then he gently disembarrassed himself of her arms and placed her on the sofa. And this is to be the end? Well, I think so, really. She thumped her hand upon the head of the sofa as a sign of her anger. Of course we will always be friends. Never! She almost screamed. We'd better. People will talk less about it, you know. I don't care what people talk. If they knew the truth, no one would ever speak to you again. Good-bye, Gus. She shook her head as he had shaken his before. Say a word to a fellow. Again she shook her head. He attempted to take her hand, but she withdrew it. Then he stood for perhaps a minute looking at her, but she did not move. Good-bye, Gus, he said again, and then he left the room. When he had got on to the street, he congratulated himself. He had undergone many such scenes before, but none which seemed so likely to bring the matter to an end. He was rather proud of his own conduct, thinking that he had been at the same time both tender and wise. He had not given way in the least, and had yet been explicit in assuring her of his affection. He felt now that he would go and hunt on the morrow without any desire to break his neck over the baron's fences. Surely the thing was done now, for ever and ever. Then he thought how it would have been with him at this moment had he in any transient weakness told her that he would marry her. 
but he had been firm and could now walk along with a light heart she as soon as he had left her got up and taking the cushion off the sofa threw it to the further end of the room having so relieved herself she walked up to her own chamber End of chapter 15